I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Premier League, where the chaos is starting to wane, or is it? Of the six recognized contenders for Champions League spots, three dropped points this weekend, and one doesn't even play until Monday. Liverpool stumble against West Brom, Spurs collapse against Newcastle, and Manchester United still managed by Louis van Gaal, for now. Thankfully, Arsenal and Manchester City are here to stem the flow of our snark, but welcome everybody to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. As I bring in your co-hosts, Cart to Krishnire and Lawrence McKenna, the league seems as ephemeral as ever. Manchester City did win 2-1 over visiting Swansea, but they needed a huge piece of luck at the end to get that result. And even Arsenal, so convincing in claiming two goals early at Villa Park, were more of a team in cruise control than a well-oiled machine. That description, Kartik, might seem kind of petty, and it might not be fair to the Gunners, who did have a convincing if in neutral result at Villa Park, but it's the feeling we have after another round of action that leaves us with little clue about the future of this year's Premier League. Yeah, this was quite a revealing weekend from where I sit because I, I you, you feel like every passing weekend that we will see some sort of separation between the top teams and the teams that, that are pretenders or that we perceive as pretenders in this division and that historically have been pretenders. Instead, what we're finding is Leicester, without playing yet, uh, their status has been elevated. Crystal Palace's status has been elevated. Arsenal, yes, they got the three points, but I, I thought they were pretty unconvincing against a bad Villa team. Manchester City were terrible. They should have lost. And uh, Manchester United have a real problem with injuries and a lack of depth, which can explain some of Arsenal and Manchester City's troubles too, but this league is uh, is wide open. And, and then, of course, Spurs and Liverpool, which we'll get to later, both of them were underwhelming this weekend. Well, Lawrence, last week we seemed really down on that. Uh, at least Kartik and I were down on the quality at the top of the Premier League. But from another point of view, isn't that a good thing? This is the most wide open the Premier League has been after 16 rounds it, in my memory. I mean, we've had three, four horse races before, but now the race seems to be five, six, seven teams deep if you count Crystal Palace now pulling uh, within reach of fourth place. Isn't that parody exciting? Isn't that a good thing? I, I don't know if it's real. I, I definitely think it's exciting. I think we're analyzing from the entertainment point of view. Uh, I definitely say that uh, a lot of analysis this season has mostly been around the flashpoints within games, which I, I see, but I also think there's a counterwave to that, which goes to the reversion uh is it reversion to the mean do you sort of revert to the, the you can mean? revert yes. or you can regress you can do both regret I, I don't like saying regression because that feels like teams are going back mm-hmm. um 
and what I actually think it means, it takes away from some of the achievement, if you like. So I'd say, I'd say revert. Um, and, and I think maybe a lot of people speak about the likes of Leicester. Uh, I, I think you can probably put Liverpool in there because of the way that Klopp plays his football and also, uh, the, the likes of Crystal Palace and some people saying, and I think this is generally what happens in English analysis, at least is when people say things that they can't necessarily quantify because they don't have the tools. They say they're either lucky. Or they're hardworking, or they're brave. Yeah, th- that's really and annoying to me. Even during amazing. games like the Swansea Manchester City game today, it was a relatively even game for all the wrong reasons. And Kartik, you, the announcer that we had here, which I think most people around the world also had the same announcer, kept saying how Swansea deserved more. This is when City was up one nil. Swansea deserved more, but really, I don't. I didn't quite get that. I mean, Swansea were playing kind of as well as City. Both teams were not that great, but this idea that you deserve certain things, or uh, you know. Just because one team scores off a set piece, they haven't earned what what they've gotten. I just don't get that level of analysis. Yeah, I think that that's the counter reaction to the the kind of the old English adage of of, of, uh, of playing long ball and, and winning off set pieces. And at one point, the analysis very much was results driven. Now in England, even more so. Even though I think in England there was just this this wish to be seen as more cosmopolitan, the way maybe some observers view Spain and other continental leagues, there is, I think, an overemphasis on possession. There is an overemphasis on tactics. There is an overemphasis on quality of play. Leicester, I should point out, top of the league entering this weekend. They may leave this week, uh, this, this set of fixtures top of the league still. They play on Monday night. Uh, we're third from bottom in possession in the league, yet they've scored the most goals in the league. Well, Lawrence, maybe that's part of the reason that we're not giving Leicester the credit they deserve. You kind of alluded to the fact that it seems a lot more of our analysis is based just on highlights or maybe what we see on Twitter. or Maybe when you go to your who scored page and you see the possession and the shot numbers and you, you just judge based on that. And by no those measures, that, maybe not in real life. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but by those measures, maybe we are doing a disservice to Leicester. On this show, we continue to not put them in our top fours. And at some point, we have to relent on that, particularly if they come up with a big win on Monday. Yeah, but then are we going to – I mean, I don't, I don't quite get that uh, because of what we, we were just speaking about trends in general. Mm-hmm. And so I see what you're saying, that they deserve to be in the top four, but they still deserve to be in the top four at the end of the season. I think a lot of people – uh, well, would I, I guess I'm not say saying that they deserve positive. it. I'm just saying, are we underselling it based on the same kind of analytical fallacies that you were just pointing out? Are we subject to that in overlooking the quality that Lester might have by continuously downgrading their long-term prospects? Um, I don't know if we're downgrading them. I, I think it could be down to just saying this team uh, maybe cannot, it looks unlikely that this team will be able to continue this kind of form. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to say. And, you know, I think it's realistic. I think part of the problem is, though, that uh, being realistic isn't necessarily marketable. Or we analyze from a, well, this needs to be an entertaining game, or we're looking for something along those lines. And so I, I just, I see what you're saying, that Leicester may have gotten better under Ranieri, and there's a sustainability issue about that, I think. Mm. Uh, and, you know, how long can they sustain that for? Even if they continue the good results, there's still something, that nagging thought that that well, Let me point something out here about Leicester, and I know this is kind of a diversion from what we were planning on talking about, but all these teams that we're comparing them to, Manchester City, Arsenal, Manchester United, have a disproportionate number of injuries. They're playing youth players, or they're filling the bench with youth players, or City had three senior players on the bench last week. Uh, United didn't have uh, any, it seemed like, other than maybe one or two, because they were throwing on youth players, starting with youth players against Bournemouth. Hmm. Leicester is not getting 
injuries. And the assumption we've made is, well, at some point they're going to start to their depth is going to start to be tested. I actually went back and looked at last season. Leicester didn't have many injuries last season either. And then I found an article online about Leicester being the one club uh, or maybe the, the prototype club in England that actually does an analysis, has staff do an analysis of, of pitch conditions at opposing parks, uh, those sorts of things, so they can guard against injuries. Maybe if this guy has a little bit of a nagging uh, calf problem, we won't play him in this sort of match. So they seem to be more prepared, knowing the thinness of their squad, in protecting players than other other teams do. So perhaps our assumptions about Leicester have been based on our thought that they would start sustaining injuries and they're only 14 or 15 deep. And maybe they're, they're going to be able to get through the season with those 14 or 15 players. And if that's the case, who says they can't finish in the top four? I think, I'm not saying they can't. I, I just think... It, it... <sighs> I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think it's a negative thing. Is if Leicester drop down the table, we've seen what's happened to teams. <laughs> I like think that's almost the definition right. of a negative thing, Lawrence. If you start at point A, you end up at point A minus four. I think that's almost by definition negative. Well, I guess it also depends on what their goal is come the end of the season. And yeah. I think forty you know, publicly, points. That's what Claudio says. Forty points. So then there you go. That there is there isn't much of a regression there if they drop out the top four. Hmm. So. Uh, just because people from outside are changing what their goals are, I, I do think Kartik makes a good point, though, is that, you know, my analysis is based on um, not necessarily thinking it's good or bad for Leicester to drop down the table. Um, th- th- let's also bear in mind, obviously, they are owned by billionaires, so there is nothing to stop them sort of investing in the same way as some other clubs, apart from maybe balancing the books in a slightly different way to the way that Man City has to. We assume that because you're owned by a billionaire, you can do the same as every other billionaire, and that's not necessarily true if you don't have the same income or infrastructure yeah i think that remember lester was one of the clubs that ran afoul of financial fair play a few years ago right weren't mm. they sanctioned by the football league at the time uh because they had spent a lot of for the championship at the time a disproportionate amount of money compared to everyone else yeah and I, 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 even then though i think you know lester is still going to point to the fact that now they're trying to balance it up or they were almost forced to um and you know i i also i, I know they're not going to sell anyone in january but I certainly think there are going to be vultures or people coming around coming in the season that are certainly going to try and test them. Um, and I think that it's it, part of the problem is that we, at the moment, the analysis in England tends to be fairly one dimensional um, in terms of whether a player wants to stay or go from a club. And I think that that will change because we have taken the human factors that Mares might want to play under another manager, Vardy. I think Vardy is a slightly different one because of the place he is in his career, but there may be players that want to come and go from the club and that's where I think the momentum thing, uh, the momentum thing makes it hard. I think my analysis of Leicester has been based on kind of traditional things. For most of the season, their goal difference wasn't actually that good. And goal difference is obviously flawed. You can't lose it, use it by itself. And there are definitely more nuanced ways of looking at things. But when you looked at the table and you saw a team that was only plus three or plus four compared to City has been in double digits all year, you kind of saw a team that wasn't really outscoring its opponents by that much. And you suspected that in the future that would catch up with them. But then there's also the obvious. We haven't seen Vardy and Mares or Drinkwater, players of that nature, Albrighton, performing at this level before. So it's it's easy to suspect that the number of games that you're using in your sample size just wasn't enough to be drawing broad conclusions on it. And I think over the last few weeks, we are starting to implicitly acknowledge that 15 rounds, 16 rounds, 18 rounds, when they get there, 
once they faced everybody in the Premier League, once we really have to start taking them seriously. And I think our top fours are going to reflect that because I think all of us are really debating when the Foxes are going to break into that end of season top four. I'm going to go first. We're going to bump our top fours into this segment. Usually we do it in, I think, the last segment. I don't know. I can't keep track of these things. Uh, but we're going to bump it up into this segment for this week. On form, I have Leicester number one. And then I have Arsenal, Watford, and kind of telling of the lack of form in the Premier League as a whole. I have Everton at number four, even though they're mm. not claiming wins, but they are at least getting draws. When you see teams like Spurs and United, the teams before that were just getting draws. Now they're losing games. Everton's kind of like the fourth out of only five or six teams that have decent form right now. End of season list. I'm so embarrassed, guys, that I popped Manchester United to second place last week. They're not even in my top four this week. I think the two losses that they had Mm -hmm. were pretty telling this week. Number four, Spurs. Number three, Liverpool. Two, Arsenal. One, City. And I've been thinking a lot about what it would take for me to jump Arsenal over City. And Arsenal fans aren't going to like this, but we have seen Wenger teams so many times. I'm going to see, need to see Arsenal in first place come March in order to put them over City, or else I'm going to have to see a collapse from City. Otherwise, I'm not putting Arsenal number one. Do you Arsenal? think that defeats predictions a little bit? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, <laughs> Same I'm, as when they said, Robbie, can they win? And then Robbie Savage just went, ask me at the end of the season. And you're like, thanks, Robbie. No, I'm not going to wait so, till the end of the season, but I, I need some other indication from Arsenal or the rest of the league that this season isn't going to be like every season in the last yeah, decade. And to this point, we're, we're just not there yet. We're not the only ones who are thinking this way, Lawrence. Uh, Robbie Musto here on the television in the United States on uh, NBC has got the very same attitude that he's not really impressed by Arsenal results until uh, we get to that point of the season. Because it's the same set of players, it's the same manager, history is a better indicator with Arsenal than with the other 19 yeah, clubs. The same way that 16 rounds is not convincing me about Leicester, I'm not going to let 16 rounds convince me about Arsenal. I'm going to let the last decade of Arsene Wenger being in position to claim a title and not claiming any of those titles. I don't need him to claim a title every year, I need him to claim one or two of these titles where Arsenal has been in position. And for most of the decade, they have been in position at one point or another to really take one of these titles. And they haven't done it. Two so, seasons ago, they led the league more than uh, more days than every other team combined in the league, and they finished fourth. So I just need a little bit more time, or I need City to really show me that they're not going to claim this title. And I'll keep my mind open, but I'm going to need more than just a win next weekend for Arsenal. I'm going to need them to show come February, come March, that they are able to sustain form that they usually lose at some point in spring. Kartik, your, your top fours. Yeah, so on form right now, I'm going to go fourth Palace, third Arsenal, second Watford, who have been very good under Kiki Sanchez Flores. We'll we'll talk more about that uh, later in the show. And first Leicester, obviously. End of the season, I thought about putting Leicester in. I actually thought about putting Palace in because Palace doesn't have we, – we talk about Leicester with Palace arguably has more – Senior team depth than any team in the league. If you look at them, and now Shamak is getting fit again. They've got uh, they've got a lot of depth. They're not going to be relying on youth players the way Manchester City and Manchester United have been with these injuries and, and uh, juggling uh, formations and tactics the way Arsenal has been. Uh, I'm still not putting them in. I'm going same exact top four as you at the end of the season right now. Spurs, Liverpool, Arsenal, City. I've dropped Man United out of the top four for this week. Yeah, it's going to be hard for me to consider Manchester United back in this group unless they change managers. Lawrence, your list. Watford. Newcastle. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, that's a good one. Yeah. Bournemouth. I, Arsenal. Again, this is just how weird the Premier League is right now. Two wins in a row, you get into the top four on Lawrence's form list. I, I like the Newcastle one. Uh, that, that's a okay. good one. End of year, Lawrence. 
Uh, it's going to go uh, Liverpool, Spurs. You see, I can see Manchester United getting someone in and getting that new manager bump, guys. Go for it. Uh, no, Arsenal City. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've got to quantify it somehow. But I'm, I'm quantifying that on current form. Mm. Uh, although then you'd say, do Liverpool deserve to be in the top there uh, ahead of so many other teams who are showing better form than them? Uh, maybe we're giving them the Europa League benefit of the doubt, something we'll talk about here later in the oh, show. Good. That's the top of the table this week, everybody. But what about the rest of the league? We'll be talking about that over the next three segments of the show. But first, this weekend's results. On Saturday, Wes Houlihan's early second-half goal canceled out Romelu Lukaku's opener at Carroll Road as Norwich earned a 1-1 draw with Everton. Southampton switched up their formation but couldn't turn around the results, losing 1-0 at Crystal Palace. A deflected goal two minutes into stoppage time allowed Manchester City to claim full points from visiting Swansea 2-1. And an early goal from Odin Agalu pushed Watford's win streak to three with a 1-0 victory at Sunderland. West Ham dominated everywhere but the scoreboard in their nil-nil with visiting Stoke. And at Dean Court, Bournemouth took their second straight scalp with a 2-1 win over Manchester United. On Sunday, goals from Olivier Giroud and Aaron Ramsey vaulted Arsenal to the top of the league with a 2-0 win at Aston Villa. West Brom nearly smashed their way out of Anfield with three points, but a 96th-minute deflected goal from Divac Origi allowed Liverpool to salvage a 2-2 draw. And Newcastle, down at halftime after an Eric Dyer goal, scored twice in the final 19 minutes, including a 93rd-minute goal from Ayose Perez to beat Tottenham 2-1 at White Hart Lane. That, with that win, the Magpies, second in a row, pushed Newcastle all the way to 15th and left a new name in the bottom three. Norwich, despite the result at Everton, sits 18th with 14 points through 16 rounds. Sunderland is next with 12, followed by Aston Villa, still in the cellar with only 6 points. At the top of the table, it's Arsenal, 33 points through 16 rounds, then Man City and Leicester, 1 point back, with Manchester United maintaining 4th, still on 29 points. Of course, the Foxes take on Chelsea on Monday. We'll talk about that later in the show. But for now, we'll take our first break, regroup, and then when we come back, we'll start breaking down all the action from the 16th round of the Premier League. Welcome back, everybody. Kind of got some bad news for you, though. Kartik... uh a couple weeks ago was in Germany. We missed him, and unfortunately, we're going to miss him the next couple weeks as his world tour continues. Kartik, why are you leaving us? I am going to India for two weeks, and I'm going to unfortunately be there for all the Boxing Day fixtures, which means I don't get to see every game because the television coverage in India is good. It's better than Welcome the UK, but it's, but it's not NBC in the United States, and this will be my first Boxing Day since... NBC got the, got the rights to my first festive period without NBC, and now it's going to be like going back into the dark ages. But I'll be back uh, December 29th, so just a two-week trip, quick trip. Uh, but I'll uh, not have the access and wealth of information I typically do because you don't get as much information outside the United States. And that includes you, Lawrence, in the UK. I know you're painfully aware of it, paying that big sky bill every month. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I pay a big sky bill to be able to stream to <laughs> countries. Uh, in Kartik's absence, Nimpun Chopra is going to be joining us on the next two review shows. But we're also no! gonna... Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm, not, I'm not on mute. We're also going to be continuing to do our midweek shows. Nimpun is going to be on those, and Kartik and Lawrence are going to start contributing to those. So just a reminder that the World Soccer Talk podcast is no longer just a weekly event anymore. Just like back in the day when it was me, Lawrence, and Kartik, we're going to be coming to you midweek now, once or twice per week. 
Let's get back to the Premier League, gentlemen. I think the result that stands out to people is Bournemouth's 2-1 to victory over Manchester United. People mostly shocked that Manchester United's slide continues. They lost 3-2 midweek in a must-win Champions League game against Wolfsburg. They're back in Europa League as a result of that. Uh, Kartik, your feelings on where Manchester United are at right now? They're struggling, and clearly... There is uh, a lot of consternation about Wayne Rooney's play. He's now injured, uh, but his play, the inability to get the most out of Juan Mata, I think that there's some confusion over what Ashley Young's role in this team is, if he has a role. I don't see quite why he's fallen out of favor, but he's completely out of favor based on the Bournemouth match. Louis Van Hall is abrasive and prickly with the media. The players don't seem to like him. They don't seem to be able to react to him. I think they're in real trouble. That having been said, this loss against Bournemouth, I thought there was more of a reaction from them in the second half after they fell behind than I've seen in these nil-nil games, which have been dour affairs where they where they drop points at home. So maybe that's a sign that the younger players, uh, he had what, about that, by that time, like about four younger players on, on the pitch are responding to him. Manchester United at various points of this game had Nick Powell, Cameron Bothwick-Jackson, Andres Pereira, Guillermo Pereira, Patty McNair, Jesse Lingard. There are a lot of kids out on the field right now for Manchester United. We saw Lingard have to leave this, leave this game early. Uh, it's a real test of their depth. Uh, and they seem to have had acquired a number of players this year. But particularly at the back, they're now resorting to third and fourth string players, youth players to come in. But the big talk around this team and talk you two didn't get to engage in after the Champions League disappointment was around Louis Van Hall as to whether Manchester United should stick with him or move on to another manager. Carlo Ancelotti is the name that tends to be brought up most, at least on this podcast, because I'm pushing for that. Uh, Lawrence, what are your thoughts? Do you think Manchester United should stick with Van Hall? And if they do move on, what type of manager should be, they be looking to replace him with? Uh, good question. I don't know if I'm the best person to ask about this because uh, I can see the, the positives and negatives in everyone. Uh, I would definitely say that with Van Gaal, there are positives that come with him uh, that we saw when he first came to the club. Uh, the, the draw, obviously, the name that people want to work with, at least in the past anyway. The fact that in the past he's also set up other teams which then uh, people have taken over from and done a good job at. And that, I think that's been Pep Guardiola twice, actually, in Barcelona and at Bayern Munich as well. Uh, also, the fact that he seems to lay a foundation and a basis of, of work ethic with the players. You'd say that also comes from a lot of different managers. And uh, with the calls in terms of Carlo Ancelotti, people are saying, well, that would change the mood within the camp because Carlo is the kind of guy who can bring a good atmosphere to a club. And that's definitely what the Real Madrid players were talking about missing when he first went away from the club. It wasn't so much that they missed Rafa Benita, uh, that they missed Carlo Ancelotti, more they missed the atmosphere and everything else that he bought. So essentially they missed his management style. So it was not really against Rafa, it was more for or pro Carlo, if you like, like Ronaldo's been saying in the media over the last few weeks. Uh, one thing I definitely would say is that football's even changed in a very short space of time in the time that, uh, you know, he was in the international scene. And before that, uh, you know, we, we hadn't seen the likes of uh, this this fantastic uh, Barcelona side um, and, and other stars of football evolve, even in the way that they do now. And I just wonder whether he's been slightly left behind and is unable to cope with some aspects of the game because he definitely identified that against Wolfsburg, but didn't manage to 
cope with the entirety of their game plan. He had no. coped with elements of it, but not all of it. And I, I wonder if that's part of the problem, whether that's him or whether that's the players, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think there's some lessons maybe in his second season at Bayern, which was his last season there. They had gotten to the Champions League final the previous year, had probably outplayed Inter in that match, but they just fell short of winning a treble. But they were really good his first season. He had brought Robin into the team. Ribery was reaching a new level. And the second season, there were problems with players. There were uh, squad issues. He was uh, outspoken in the German media. And uh, he, he was savaging his players publicly. And they ended up finishing third. They sacked him, brought Heinkins in, and, and obviously uh, got quite good again right after that. So uh, Dortmund won the league but that year, by the way. So maybe you're right, Lawrence. Maybe the, the, the instructive, we think about Van Hall's Barca experience and that it didn't go bad for several years. And they, they were good before things kind of fell apart for him. But at Bayern, it, it came undone pretty quickly. And maybe that's what's happening at United again. It seems like that part of it is coming out more and more in recent weeks. Uh, me in particular, always highlighting in their first weeks of the season how Manchester United got better during the second half of last season, and we see that with Van Hall teams. But we mentioned in last week's show, Lawrence, um, Kartik and I, how Van Hall's teams tend to go one way or another dramatically. They either get a lot better, they synthesize, they get what he's trying to do, or they collapse because they're tired of him. And it seems like now we're trending in that direction, the second direction. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, it is very sort of bipolar, isn't it, our reaction to Van Gaal? Uh, I was reading the blizzard over the last few weeks uh, and the analysis of Jose Mourinho as well. Um, and there's, there's, I think it's a 12,000-word piece from Jonathan Wilson that I can really recommend. And obviously, there are a lot of managers at the moment that have come out of that Barcelona school of thinking. And uh, I think a lot of them have taken different things from that. Uh I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like there is a very one-dimensional way to look at Van Gaal uh, if, if we're just talking about him in terms of being good for Manchester United, bad for Manchester United. I do think that there's also other sides. The camera was constantly trained on, um, not Ed Woodward, who's the... No, Ed Woodward was on camera it, like yeah, three yeah, or four yeah. times. Ed, yeah, Ed Sporting Woodward, a nice, um, a weird beard, actually. Yeah, sort of uh, a nice beard. Yeah, yeah sure. He's got, nice. he got like a two-week growth going. Yeah. Um, and it, you, you I, I think that, that that's also where part of the focus is because, yeah. you know, they're looking at the investment. They're looking at the, uh, is it two, a quarter of a billion that they've spent? If you put it like that, it sounds massive. If you say 250 million, it's not but quite it, as big. But that's only There's in fees too, there. in addition to the high salaries that they're paying. Yeah, that too. And then I <laughs> I guess there's a lot to it. What I'm saying is, I, I think in the short term, there's suffering here for Manchester United. But I think in the long term, a lot of this is breakdown, is breakthrough here for Manchester United. Um, and, I, you know, and most United fans are saying, uh, uh, trying to see it in a positive light. And I don't blame them for that. But there are huge parallels between mistakes that people have made in the past at clubs in sugarcoating it and those kind of things. I think it would be great right now if a lot of Twitter wasn't banterous and it was a lot more... Yes. Yeah, yeah, let's not talk about Twitter. Twitter's the worst. Uh, Kartik, yeah, but it does tend to split people. And I, yeah, I've absolutely. Got a, I've, that's part of the reason why it's the worst. But I've quite have a brotherhood idea with Manchester United right now because I see them going through similar things that I experienced when I was a kid. And I didn't like those experiences. And at times, I, I don't know, I, I think the bubble just ends up feeling more like it's sort of bullying than helping anyone. Mm-hmm. Kartik, let's talk about Bournemouth for a minute. Two straight, very encouraging results against two struggling powers, but powers nonetheless. To what do we attribute their turnaround? They're, they're getting better play at forward. 
A lot of talk this week about Harry Arter's influence in midfield. Maybe Arthur Burridge isn't making the same mistakes that he habitually does. But yeah. Why all of a sudden is Bournemouth now taking good performances and making them into good results? Three points. Joshua King now uh, comfortable in the Premier League. He's a player that uh, there, that we've had uh, thought has had a lot of potential when he was at Blackburn. Actually, when he kept being loaned out by Manchester United going further back. He's now comfortable. He's feeling that Callum Wilson role and doing some things that Wilson, quite frankly, didn't do. Uh, Arters has given them a real spark in midfield. They're still missing Max Gradle, I, that, but I, they're not missing Callum Wilson as much as they were before. Mm-hmm. Arters has really helped them. Their uh, defense is now solidified with Elpchek. Uh, he's, he's, I think, maybe out for the season also, their captain. Uh, when he got hurt, things went bad, and there were communication issues with the goalkeeper, Arthur Boric, who was making a lot of mistakes, and, and that back four, that seems to have been solved. And Arthur Boric, not only is he not making the mistakes he was making earlier in the season, all those gaffes, he's now coming up with some pretty good saves. He's actually doing quite well in, in both these games. I thought he was very good. Yeah, some nice aggressive reads coming off his line to cut down angles this weekend. Uh, let's move to a couple of games where there might not be a lot to talk about because they were somewhat formulaic games. And let's start at Villa Park where, Lawrence, it was pretty much top of the table team maybe not looking great but taking care of business early against a struggling team arsenal is now top of the table at least for now pending monday's result uh in leicester let's talk about some of the individuals here because olivier Giroud, mm. in particular after his hat trick midweek a huge performance for him against olympiacos really standing out uh, but he's still a player lawrence that divides opinion uh, yeah, and people always talk about the end product with him and seem to evaluate him like a lot of Arsenal players in an almost FIFA-esque way where they almost say, you know, if you don't if you don't possess these qualities, then you don't fit into the team. Um, and there's, you know, I think there's room for nuance there uh, with, with the analysis of him considering the amount of goals that he scored for them. And uh, I almost think sometimes it serves people to stay within that because they need something to fight against. Uh, and I think Arsenal fans especially sometimes are terrible at feeling very sorry for themselves. Um, and so they, they want that narrative to be there because they like to see themselves as the underdog. I think sometimes that misserves Arsenal um, in the way that they play their football. And, you know, uh, the problem is that then when they're looking down on other teams, there's not necessarily something to fight for. Um, uh, you'd say the same of other players within the team, Joel Campbell, Meza Ozil, even the likes of uh, Walcott, Flamini, I mean, they only, you'd even say Ramsey fitting into that, who's coming back from an injury, and you'd argue he's going to step up um, and, and already has stepped up in the last few games. One player I think maybe isn't being spoken about enough at the moment is Koscielny. We were having a conversation the other day on um, on, a, on a show, I can't remember which one it is now, but they were saying, is he one of the best? Uh, is, he, is he one of the best centre-backs in Europe right now? If not, you know, could you pair him in, up? In with England. Him? In, in England, in England yes. he is. I'm not Definitely. sure about Europe, but definitely in England. I mean... You know, there is a there is an argument to be made that there's a reason that some managers are going to a back three, and that's not necessarily because uh, they want to make it more defensive, but because they don't right. have a back two that they trust. Or maybe and they so have they a have player. Play- maybe they have a player like we were talking about with Chris Smalling. They have a player that's so versatile that they can afford to do that and let that player roam around a little bit more and read the game rather than being beholden to a position. Uh, maybe so, but then you've got yeah. to say that there are certain sides within within the league who are maybe more suited to that. I, I, I'm questioning why Big Sam and a couple of other managers have done that. Well, probably for the reason that you said before, where it's hard for them to be defensively stout when they can't yeah. put three center backs back there. That might be that situation. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just, I, I, I enjoy watching Arsenal uh, always. And I think, you know, there's a lot of goodwill towards them. Um, but I, I, I certainly think against Aston Villa at the weekend, 
uh, they they showed a lot of why they like in the first half a lot of why they're good mm. and then tailed off towards the end of the second half and that's why maybe people are talking about March like you are. Mm. Uh, Kartik, let's talk about another individual that is standing out, Metsud Olsel. But this is another individual that's subject to that FIFA-esque analysis that Lawrence was just talking about. For so many years, he was judged purely by his assist stats that seemed to flatter him at Real Madrid. And now those same people are alluding to those assist stats. And I think it's kind of come full circle. They're probably not appreciating the moment-to-moment impact that Ozil is having this year that maybe he didn't have during his time at Real Madrid and in his introduction at Arsenal. Yeah, and I think the thing I've noticed is that his movement is so fluid and he plays so well off of the other players in that Arsenal midfield since they have generally a solidified midfield. Now Santi Cazola is out for a while, so that's, that's going to uh, upset that. But when he plays with Ramsey... And with Alexis Sanchez to a lesser extent, but he and Ramsey especially, their interplay is fantastic, and they're moving off of one another. I'm not just talking about uh, interplay with the ball, but but their understanding of one another's games is outstanding. Mm-hmm. And I think this FIFA narrative, this FIFA, us judging players based on FIFA, is becoming too much of a uh, a regular occurrence with people who are otherwise good analysts of the sport because the Giroud example that Lawrence gives is spot on. I think Olivier Giroud is one of the best strikers in the Premier League. I think he's just a cut below those top strikers in Europe. I really think he's that good. Now, he's been stuck on a team that doesn't have another pure out-and-out striker that can play, so he's forced to play a lot of games. And he doesn't give you those kind of FIFA attributes of speed or, or the guy who's always scoring on set pieces in FIFA, right? You either have to have a guys who's uh, those video game buffs out there that, that is fast that you can lob balls onto or a guy who's going to score on headers on set pieces. Giroud doesn't do either one of those things particularly well in the video game. So then people translate that analysis and say, you know, I think maybe they're better off with Theo Walcott up top because he's a lot quicker. And just kind of silly analysis like that, quite honestly. In fairness to those people, speaking from my own personal experience, between uh, FIFA, Football Manager, and Twitter, I really don't even need to watch games anymore. Why watch games? They take 90 minutes at a time. That's a waste of time. (laughs) But Aaron Ramsey, I want to pick up on him because we talked earlier this year about how him cutting in for the right and filling those spaces that Old Soul left vacated as he went searching for the ball really helped. But over these last two games where he's now coming and filling those spaces from a deeper position, we've been reminded that Aaron Ramsey's best production have come from that position, not out wide. And as Santi Casola is going to be out until March, maybe April now, the debate is going to heat up. Is sacrificing Ramsey's production to have a better place for Casola really worth it, given how good Ramsey could be in this role? Or maybe Arsenal maybe has to try to do something to fit both of those guys in the middle and maybe forego a traditional destroyer. I don't know, but when you see the way Aaron Ramsey has played over this week, you do wonder what his best position is. And given the quality he can bring to that position, whether Arsenal should bend to him rather than Santi Cazola. Let's go to one more game before we go to break, everybody. Manchester City versus Swansea. Kartik, I think we could admit that this was not Manchester City's best performance, needing that deflected goal in the 92nd minutes, gain full points. Uh, why... Why did City get tripped up this week? It seems like something a little different each week. We can't blame it on Yaya Torre this time. He was actually pretty good. Where were the shortcomings against Swansea? Well, Pellegrini opted not to start De Bruyne, which was, I, I find, based on the midweek performance against Muchen Gladbach. Raheem Sterling had played as a false nine in that game. Or he and, he and De Bruyne were supposed to play off of one another. De Bruyne didn't do much. So he got sat for this game. At the start, Navas was brought back into the team on the other wing, Silva in the middle. They looked good, 
in the first half, the first 30 minutes or so, Man City looked good. That The movement of those, uh, the interplay of those three guys and Wilfred Boney was very good. After that, real problems at the back again. I, I think uh, Fernandinho did not have his best game, which was an issue. And Swansea were better in this game. The introduction of Benefemi Gomes gave uh, them some impetus. They played without a recognized striker at the beginning of the match. And I, I felt like uh, a Sigurdsson, there, there is a... Um, Gilfie Sigurdsson, I think, was a player that was handcuffed a lot by Gary Monk as the manager. And I, I still think he's a very, very good player. And we've seen it at times in spots in England, both his first stint at Swansea and now this stint. And then, of course, at Spurs. When Swansea gets this next manager appointment, which I'm pretty sure they'll get right because Hugh Jenkins gets every managerial appointment right. He's, he's the only guy who's batting a thousand percent in English football as far as managerial appointments as a chairman of a, of, of a big club. I think you're going to see Sigurdsson featured a lot more. He seemed more comfortable uh, when he was playing. And then I, I just think Swansea are at a point where they know now they have to get results now that Gary Monk has been sacked and they played a lot better. But uh, City got the point, they, uh, the three points they probably shouldn't have, and they move on. But it, as far as concerns and question marks, I think they're numerous and we've gone through them before. It's just rehashing much of that. So there's no point in doing it again. City missing Vincent Company, missing... Sergio Aguero missing Vincent Company. They have a big game next weekend against Arsenal. Top of the table battle. Maybe we'll see what. Oh, Leicester oh I does should. I, let me point out one other thing. So since the Paris attack, Sonia has not been very good, and he said after the first game, which was against Liverpool, that the attacks had had impacted him. But now he's consistently been poor to the point where uh, Pellegrini started cliche at left at right back in the Champions League against Mönchengladbach. That was a bad idea. So he went back to Sonia. The Pablo Zabaleta injury now looking more and more serious for Manchester City, not just in the sense that he would probably come in and play better than Sonia, but he is one of those few leaders the team has, one of the few guys who've been with the club now. This is uh, Zabaleta's eighth or ninth season with the club. When we come back, everybody, we're going to talk about Liverpool. We're going to talk about Spurs. We're going to talk about that next level of the Premier League, as well as get you updated on what's going on in Spain. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk podcast. When we last left Spain, Gary Neville was the talk of La Liga, a talk that has died down over the last week. A home loss to Leon in Champions League, followed by this week's 1-1 draw with Ibar, has reminded everybody of Valencia's realities. 13th place, winless in nearly a month, Neville has a lot to work, of work to do at the Mestalla. Now the talk has shifted back to the capital, where Madrid's second team finds itself joint top of the table. After Deportivo La Coruña impressed at the new camp on Saturday and fought back to earn a 2-2 draw at Barcelona, the door was left open for Atletico Madrid to claim a share of first place, even if that opportunity looked like it was going to be foiled by Athletic Club. The Basque club, visiting the Calderon this weekend, claimed a 1-0 lead through Emerick Laporte, a lead that could have kept Atleti two points back at Barcelona. But goals by Saul Munguez and Antoine Griezmann brought Diego Simeone's team back for a 2-1 win, one that left them tied with the defending champions atop of Spain's table with 35 points through 15 rounds. Real Madrid playing the last game of the weekend on Sunday lost 1-0 at Villarreal where Roberto Saldado's early goal held up. They stay in third place, five points back. Celta Vigo is fourth, seven points back after their 1-0 win over Espanyol. Back to the Premier League and our players of the week. A tough choice this week since there weren't very many truly standout performances. Unfortunately, Lawrence, you get to go for it first. 
fortunately, I get to go first, Richard. Uh, this is a hard decision. Uh, it's between Igalo mm-hmm. and Glenn Murray because, uh, you know, I think he deserves credit for what he's doing at, at, uh, at Bournemouth. So which of these players has played for Palace? Screw you. I'm going with Igalo. Uh, uh, you know, the, for weeks in a row now, he's been in red-hot form. Um, and I think also looks like the kind of player that's got longevity in the Premier League. Um, Statistics-wise, you know, having started so many games this season uh, for, uh, for for Watford, I think that for a while people were questioning their pedigree within the league and whether, you know, with the combination of manager and players that they have and the, the system they have for quite a while now, whether they can do it, whether strikers like could thrive in the Premier League under that system. And I think Igalo is, is showing the kind of mentality you need alongside the likes of Troy Deeney. Um, both of them up front, stepping up essentially. And I quite like that. Igalu is one of four players that have over 10 goals so far this year, scoring his 10th this weekend at Sunderland. A really well-worked goal by Watford, the only goal of the game there. A nice feed from Naomi from the right. Igalu was there to put it back in. Uh, it was a week where there was no clear standout performers, so being the hipster I am, of course, I, I look for hidden meanings and those understated performances, but still came up with three star players to choose from. I was really choosing from Aaron Ramsey, Johan Kabaye, and Yaya Toure, and with a little bit of Lawrence in my Heart, I'm choosing Johan Kabaye. Again, this is partly to recognize somebody who has been maybe not a dominant force, but a steady force, and really maybe the player that is taking Crystal Palace from that dangerous team that they first were under Alan Pardew to a team that is capable of putting up consistent results and really beating anybody. He had the only goal this weekend in Palace's 1-0 victory over Southampton. It's the type of performance we're used to seeing from Kabaye. Very good, making the play when it counts for Crystal Palace, and often that play being the difference between three and one point. Seems like a perfect weekend to recognize him. Kartik? Being the hipster I am, Richard, I was determined to give the award this week to a goalkeeper. So I wanted wow. to give it to Arthur Boric. I thought that that would be a, a revolutionary decision, but I, I just couldn't. Uh, thinking about goalkeepers in the league and who've made great impacts, not just this week, and made some great saves this week, but in the last few weeks, uh, Hilaria Gomez, uh, a keeper that I think got ridiculed a lot when he was at Spurs, but made some nice saves, had some nice uh, games at Spurs, uh, but uh, eventually fell out of favor with Harry Redknapp. Uh, he, he's having a nice revival in the Premier League at Watford, as is Etienne Capu, another former uh, Spurs player. So uh, I'm going to give it to Gomez. I, th- I thought he was very, very good again this week. He's communicating well with that back four, because what we saw this uh, offseason was uh, this, this past summer, summer of 2015, was Watford turned over a lot of their squad, other than Dini and Igalo of the two guys Lawrence mentioned earlier who were playing out of their minds going forward. Uh, they didn't change that, at least. But they changed a lot of the back four. They changed a lot of the midfield. And Gomez is keeping them well-organized and is communicating well with them in addition to making some great saves. So he's my pick this week. Kartik, I'm going to stay with you because we're going to talk about Spurs-Newcastle, a 2-1 victory for the Magpies at White Hart Lane. Talk to you about Steve McLaren. We've been going back and forth on him, hopeful, critical, I think the one thing that we have to acknowledge is that despite some poor form, not just some poor form, Newcastle's been poor for most of this year, he's maintained a belief in the team that now has them with two very good victories in a row. And as a result, they're now two points clear of the drop. 
Yeah, and I, I felt all along that Newcastle were going to be fine uh, because of the, the squad they had and his ability to to, to kind of uh, uh, tactically set up a team. Now, the thing that had come to light in the last few weeks was that people said, well, he is a good tactical manager and he and he's uh, one of the few English managers that's been able to go abroad and have some success because he's a good tactical manager. However, he's not a good man manager and he's a, more of a coach than a manager. So this is a problem. This is why Newcastle is going to get relegated. We've seen the players really respond to him the last two weeks, though, haven't we? In two tough matches, you would have expected them to get nothing out of either match. They've gotten six points. You've seen a fight, a drive, a determination uh, among the Newcastle players that we have not seen since, uh, gosh, I mean, we didn't even see it at times during the Pardew era. I mean, we, we really haven't seen it in several years with Newcastle, at least consistently, and, and against opposition this good, as good as Liverpool and Spurs the last two weeks. So mm. I think they have turned the corner. Lawrence, let's talk about Spurs now, because mm. a lot of people that want to resort to the same storylines, the same way that I would say Kartik and I keep resorting to the same storyline regarding Arsenal and their potential to compete in this league, they're resorting to it with Spurs now, a team that races all the way up to the line but can't quite get over it. And after this result on Sunday, where they had a 1-0 lead, gave up two late goals to Newcastle, a lot of people are going to be left saying this is just Spurs being Spurs. I think a lot of people are going to apply that, but I also think there's a, a slight change in narrative. You know, Spurs didn't look the awful team that uh, a lot of people are uh, painting it, painting them as. Uh, you know, I mean, we saw Lamella have a fantastic game earlier this week, mm. and then this weekend at times dropped in and out of the game. I think uh, from from what I I heard the game and then spoke to people about it afterwards, from what I've been told by those people, Newcastle sat fairly deep and Spurs were kind of able to pass around that, but didn't seem to make very many clear chances. So it really played into Newcastle's hands. And I think that's part of the problem with the, uh, you know, talking about quality within this league. I don't know if it's the quality that took away from what Spurs had, but it was the consistency of being able to change up what was going on. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it, it's, it's looking for the right qualities in the team. And I guess that's the thing with McLaren is that McLaren identified where his team were going wrong and changed that very quickly, pushed the side up, and essentially put the pressure back onto Spurs, which most people would say should work quite well for them. But because of the, the, the flow of the game and because of the way that Spurs have played into it so far, it didn't work out that way for them. And Newcastle were the one that, that eventually got the win because they were the ones that pushed. Let's talk about another theory, gentlemen. It's not a new theory, but given what we saw from Tottenham this weekend, given what we saw from Liverpool, and then the way that those two managers are approaching their club's midweek commitments, let's talk about Europa League fatigue. Uh, this isn't mm -hmm. something that's unique to England. We even see the one example that comes to mind most ardently for me is a team like Napoli, who I believe finished group stage perfect in Europa League and are playing as good as any team in Italy, yet they're not within reach of Inter right now at the top of their table. With the two English teams, Lawrence, I'll start with you, and then Kartik, let's get your response to it. We see two managers that go into these games wanting to play their best players as health permits. That doesn't mean they're not rotating. They're being very conscious of fatigue, but they're not holding out Felipe Cacchino just because he's returning from injury. He goes in and he plays, and they're not holding out other starting players if they are ready to go. And as a result... It seems like multiple times this year we see these turnarounds from Thursday to Sunday really bite them, and I think that could partially explain what happened on Sunday to these two teams. What do you think, Lawrence? Uh, partly, although I, I don't know if that's the case with Liverpool, actually, because when you looked at the starting lineup for Liverpool 
against Siam, you know, starting Rigi, uh, Firmino, I think, also started that game. Uh, and uh, sorry, Firmino, I think, actually came on as a sub, but uh, I think uh, who else started? Anyway, the, the point would be that with that game for Liverpool, uh, there were a number of younger guys. Joe, Joe Allen, I think, started. Yeah, Joe Allen starts in the midfield. I don't think Liverpool suffered so much uh, from that. I genuinely just, I genuinely just think that it's you know partly down to the opposition here and taking each game as it comes. The West Brom game is always going to be difficult for Liverpool because of the way that West Brom played. You know, uh, Newcastle sat behind the ball, and I think actually Klopp refused to shake, um, refused to shake the manager's hand today, Tony Pulis, and because of the way they played their football. I think uh, the the bigger problem is the diversity of the way that they play the games um, and, you know, the change in tactics for those players. They don't have very much preparation time. So I don't know if it's uh, so much to do with the uh, fitness, but more to do with the way they're preparing for the game and how they take it. Mm. And the fact is, it's going to be difficult to play West Brom. It was going to be difficult to play Newcastle because they're two teams who uh, don't necessarily play into how Liverpool and Tottenham want to play their own football. Mm -hmm. Kartik, your thoughts on the Europa League theory? Yeah, it's been a theory used for years by Spurs fans. I mean, maybe Liverpool fans are not as familiar with the excuse making of Spurs fans uh, claiming that they're uh, that that finishing fifth every year is due to, to due to the Europa League. Uh, however, this season they don't have the depth necessarily to be playing their first team on Thursday night. Although Harry Kane was held out of this game this past Thursday, uh, but time and again, Pochettino has emphasized. Europa League this season because of the ability to get into Champions League by winning Europa League. So uh, it, it has affected Spurs this season. A lot, Some of these uh, kind of um, blah draws that they've gotten, of course, this was their first loss since uh, mid-August, but uh, these blah draws they've gotten on Sundays after Europa League can be attributed to it. No more excuses now, though, because Europa League group stage is over. The knockout stage doesn't start till the middle of February. Now we have a run of fixtures where Spurs and Liverpool are on the same playing field as everybody else. Liverpool's going to have these two uh, very difficult uh, League Cup ties against uh, Stoke in the semifinals. But other than that, in the League Cup semifinals, they're on the same playing field. So this is why I think sometimes the Europa League narrative is overplayed because, yes, it impacts teams early in the season. We saw it. Uh, with, with Swansea a couple of seasons ago. We saw it with Newcastle the year before that. We have seen it at times uh, with, with Spurs. We saw it with Everton last season. But then those teams don't pull out of their funks until January or February or March, even when uh, they don't have Europa League to worry about. So I, I think it's more of an excuse than anything else. Although I have to say, uh, Thursday is the absolute worst day to play a football match if you're going to play at the weekend because you lose a day of training and then you have a day of travel. Uh, it's not the same thing as playing on a Tuesday or Wednesday. If you just look at the way coaches like to structure training and recovery and those sorts of things. So there is something to the Thursday Europa League games having an impact. But I think it's now become, again, one of those lazy narratives that is constantly an excuse. Mm. Let's talk about West Brom. Lawrence, you alluded to it. West Brom is playing as uh, as Pugliasian as ever uh, on Sunday. And on Sunday, they started Johnny Evans in front of the defense. Mm Solomon mm-hmm. Rondon was abandoned up top. Uh, no yet, problem with that. Yet set-piece execution, trying not to make the big mistake in defense, relying on Simone Mignolet to keep you in the game. They almost took three points from Anfield. I think the tension here for me is this. Undefeated in four, they clearly have something going. But they've only scored 16 goals in 16 games, and they're not really 
putting in a style of play to build on. This is the apex of what we can expect from West Brom. And in that sense, yes, it looks like they're going to stay clear of a relegation battle. They're currently six points above the drop. But Pulis isn't giving them anything to build on. Didn't we feel the same way about him at Stoke? Well, and, and eventually then... Stoke had to move on, right? Yeah, I guess so. Um, although, I, I, you know, I, I, I partly feel a bit sorry for Tony Pulis because there's this almost moralizing about the way that he plays his football. I, I don't, I don't think it's cool that Jurgen Klopp didn't shake his hand today. Um, he, I, that was maybe one of the first mistakes that I imagine will be highlighted by the media that Klopp has made. They were more than happy for him to swear in press conferences and stuff because it was his way. But now he hasn't shaking someone's hand which is less gentlemanly than swearing in public suddenly we're going to get a a big furore over it uh, i feel sorry for tony Pulis because i think you know we speak about managers being pragmatic we speak about results we speak about chelsea going away and playing against barcelona and having to park the bus and and we also then overlook the fact that liverpool subbed off one 20 million pound player for another 20 million pound player in this game so I, in one minute, we're congratulating certain sides for staying in the Premier League and waiting for that TV money. And the next minute, we're castigating the likes of Tony Pulis. I, my problem is that over the past years, that really has been a moralizing over things. And that's come more from the continent than it has from anywhere within the Premier League. Uh, and I, I feel sorry for Tony Pulis in that because I actually think that he is giving them something to build on it. And I think the same sort of analysis can be surrounded with Lou Van Gaal as well. But what are they, what is he giving them to build on though? Because the style of play and the tactics that he's instituting are not going to lead to better results if he gets different players wait, in there, provided he can even get different players in there that want to go look play at there. The results they were that he's got, Richard. But they were fine under Alan Irvine. They were fine under Pepe Mel. They were fine under. They were certainly fine under Steve Clark. This is a club that has had a quick trigger with other managers. I, I could understand why Alan Irvine was sacked last season around this time, and yet uh, they're they're giving Pulis. Pulis is just getting the same results those guys were getting. Uh, maybe a little better than Pepe Mel, but his results aren't any better than Steve Clark's or, or Alan Irvine's were. And I agree with you. I agree with you, Lawrence, about moralizing. Yeah. We should stay away from moralizing the same way that people have moralized over Sam Allardyce. But what I see with Sam Allardyce no, is, a, is, is a pragmatic style of play that actually tries to be positive in the things that people think are negatives. Like if he, well, the traditional Allardyce, let's go to the stereotype and not worry about the extent to which it's true anymore. The traditional stereotype of playing for crosses and trying to take advantage of those traits based on maybe some antiquated ideas, at least that is a progressive or a positive way of trying to attack somebody and exploit your strengths. What we see from Pulis is a pragmatism that borders on defeatism, except for the idea that we can hold out, we can execute on set pieces, and we can take advantage of other people's mistakes. Difference between that and what Allardyce does is Allardyce can go out and get players like a Stuart Downing to fit his system and maybe evolve it a little bit. Tony Pulis is just going out and getting a Solomon Rondon that fits in that ideal that is still dependent on other teams failing. And that's what I think is different. I don't think that's moralizing. I think that's just pointing out the limits of what Pulis does. I, I see what you're saying, but I also think that there's an opposite to that. I listen. I really enjoyed Mina Rizuki's analysis of uh, some football the other night on World Football Phone over the weekend. And what she was saying was that what coaches were looking for and what scouts were looking for in the 80s was a player with a type of physicality which would get them up to a certain level in the English league. And now their appreciation for that has gone a little bit more and they tend to be looking for the technical skills because they see themselves behind others. And I think because of the what the, the trends that we're currently in, there tends to be a criticism of the way that Pulis plays, but I don't necessarily think that that criticism 
is is warranted because I, I have no problem with a manager doing what they want. It's their own team. It's their own vision. And I understand that, you know, it's it, there's also the product side to it. Uh, and, you know, the fact that the Premier League needs the money. So, you know, there's not going to be, you know, West Brom almost benefiting. Put it this way. Uh, there's almost a herd mentality about the way that West Brom play because if every team played that way, then we wouldn't be able to market the Premier League and West Brom wouldn't have the, the money to be able to invest. But West Brom are somewhat anomalous within this league for playing that way. We, were we feeling the same way about when Arsenal fans were chanting 1-0 to the Arsenal? Hmm. Kartik, were we? Kartik, what do you think? Uh, not only about what Lawrence is talking about, I think he makes some good points, but also what if West Brom stays with this approach... What does their future hold? Uh, first, first off, uh, I've defended Pulis in the past, as you know, Lawrence. But mm. uh, as we, if you're going to have the Pulis Allardyce conversation and, and that comparison, I think it's again a very lazy thing to group them in together. Mm. Allardyce is a guy who has consistently gone to clubs and tweaked his tactics to adjust to his personnel. There are there are things that Allardyce's teams did at West Ham. West Ham fans won't appreciate it because they're they're from the Trevor Brooking, uh, Jeff Hurst, Bobby Moore. You know the, the school that they play the most beautiful football in England. But there were things he did to tweak his tactics to the personnel he had. They weren't just flinging long balls forward and flinging crosses in, into the area. And I, I've seen him do some some creative things already with Sunderland this season. Pulis has disappointed me at West Brom because. I had uh, defended him at Stoke, as you know, Lawrence, back in the days when he hosted the show and would argue with Morgan about it incessantly on this pod. He went to Crystal Palace. I said he's going to keep them in the league. He's going to do well there. He had to do well there because they had good personnel. The personnel part who has now got uh, sniffing at the top four, obviously with the major addition of Kabai. But really, you know, a lot of the same players. He had to do well. Now he's gone to West Brom, a team that was playing nicely under Alan Irvine. Yeah, maybe they weren't getting the greatest results, but they weren't going to get relegated last season. And a team that played very nicely under Steve Clark. And he has, he has regressed them to where Stoke was in 20, 2009 and 2010. Not even where Stoke was when he left, but where Stoke was when they first came into the Premier League. So I'm very, very disappointed in, in what I see from Pulis. He's just reverting back to that, uh, that tactic because I think he's under pressure from the management, they brought him in to ensure they stay in the league to get that TV money this season, mm-hmm. uh, next season. And obviously, there's this uh, uh, this this feeling that you know, West Brom has typically been a yo-yo club that's been close to dropping several times, uh, or used to be a yo-yo club. Now they've stayed in the league for five or six seasons straight, and I think uh, Jeremy Peace, the, the the president, the chairman of the team, still has this feeling. You don't want. Uh, we need to just solidify and stay in the league. I'm not sure this is going to be tolerable a year from now when they're still in the division and they're performing like this. And one quick point, I have to make this uh, because this might be the last show I'm on before the January window opens. Berahino is being absolutely held hostage there. I don't necessarily side with player power a lot. A lot, a lot of times I say, you know what, good for the team, good for Everton not selling John Stones. But in this case, Berahino is not playing. His value is being reduced while he's sitting on the bench. They didn't take the money from Spurs. And here's a young player who I think would be in England's plans this summer for the Euros, who now isn't playing at all. And who knows if he can get back that form that he had before. Mm. And Pulis is not able to find a way to work this very talented player into their side. It, it's really very yeah. frustrating. To well, watch. He's, he's part of what FIFA Pro, I think, are uh, uh, campaigning against or trying to change. And obviously with the anniversary of the Bosman rule and those sort of things this year, it's bringing a lot of focus to that. I think what FIFA Pro are more going for now is the side that players should be able to move freely uh, in the same way that other people who are laborers, in inverted commas, um, 
move within Europe and therefore that will change the transfer structure a lot. It'll also mean that maybe players uh, are valued in different ways, all those kind of things. And so maybe we wouldn't see the attitude taken by Berahino in the first place, which has maybe made him less popular at West Brom and we'll see less narratives playing out like this. Mm, certainly something yeah, to talk yeah, about. I, I, don't, I don't embrace what he did and his attitude and saying, well, I need this move to Spurs. Uh, I'm not going to play again for the club, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Peace. I don't, I don't agree with that, but now I don't agree with how he's been handled since he wasn't mm. sold to Spurs. I thought he'd just be reintegrated into the squad. Pulis would find a way to, to, to work him in, but it's, it's obvious now they've held the player hostage and they have no intention to use, to play him. And they didn't take the, the money from Spurs. I, I don't, I, I don't know quite what, what their valuation of the player was if they didn't take 25 million or whatever it was that Tottenham offered. It's their choice, isn't it? I mean, you know, Chelsea held Maluda hostage for quite some time if we're seeing it in the same way uh, because of his attitude towards Chelsea, but people had less of a problem with that. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, I, I think there's a number of poor attitudes towards labour with players because of the amount of money that's currently in the league. And, you know, the Premier League and UEFA haven't moved to regulate that in any way and essentially shot themselves in the foot in the long run of creating a product which is sustainable. And they're realising that, and you know, the horse is bolting in many ways, so... Well, certainly a couple of topics that we should be talking about on future shows. Player power, obviously, in the news, particularly this time of year as we're approaching the January window. And then Tony Pulis, it's very interesting that both Stoke and Crystal Palace appear to be better teams without him there. And West Brom maybe saw better days under Roy Hodgson and Steve Clark. Going to take our break right now. When we come back, we'll talk about the rest of the matches in the Premier League weekend, get up to date on Europe, and then look forward to Monday's match between Leicester and Chelsea. Stick around. This is the World Soccer Talk podcast. Over to Germany, where the story of the week had been Borussia Mönchengladbach, where the win over Bayern Munich last weekend put the surge the teams had under André Schubert into the spotlight. But then the team lost at Manchester City in Champions League 4-2, a result that proved only a nudge before Saturday's true wake-up call. At the Bayern Arena, Gladbach gave up five goals in their most lopsided result since Lucien Favre stepped down. Three goals from Chicharito Hernandez, two from Stefan Kiesling, starting with Hernandez up top, gave Bayer Leverkusen a 5-1 win and knocked Gladbach to fifth place in the Bundesliga. Above them is Wolfsburg, who followed their midweek defeat of Manchester United with a 1-1 home draw with a surprisingly decent Hamburg. Next in third is Hertha Berlin, who trounced Darmstadt 4-0 on Saturday. Second place Borussia Dortmund got goals from Henrik Mkhitaryan, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Mats Hummels, and Adrian Ramos in a 4-1 win over Eintracht Frankfurt. They stay within five of Bayern Munich, who beat Ingolstadt 2-0 at the Allianz Arena. Elsewhere in Europe... Inter stays top of Serie A with a shock 4-0 win at Udinese. A shock because Inter actually scored four goals in one game. Uh, as we're recording, Juventus is close to a 2-1 win over Fiorentina, but Inter Milan is going to have the perch in, pure, in Serie A all to themselves. Likewise, in France, PSG is hosting Lyon. PSG well clear of the rest of Lyon. And then in Portugal... Portugal, Sporting routed Morianense to stay two points clear of Porto. A former Liverpool midfielder Alberto Akilani has Sporting's second goal. So, um, Portugal. I guess we're updating people on Portugal now. Uh, gentlemen, we have one question from a listener. It's the same question as last week. Robert, who on Twitter is SunnySoCalRap25, 
Uh, he asks us to talk about the FA Cup draw. The third round draw happened this week. It's when teams from the Premier League enter the competition. Some notable fixtures. Watford is going to be hosting Newcastle. West Ham gets Wolverhampton. Salford City is the lowest ranking team still in the competition. Need to win one more game to make it into the third round. If they do, they'll be hosting Derby. Spurs will face Leicester. Arsenal faces Sunderland. Manchester United hosts Sheffield United. So the Blades not only get a share of that gate, but they get a path into the fourth round probably. Southampton is going to be facing Crystal Palace and then Norwich against Manchester City. Um, gentlemen, your reactions to the draw, I have to admit, I, I kind of feel like for me, Kartik, the FA Cup is something that I'm told to care about, but I find it impossible to care about until later rounds of the competition. I just, I just don't have any particular affinity for this competition at this point in time. Yeah, there's the, the, the um, romance of the cup and there's some, if Salford City makes it to the third round, there'll be massive romance for that. And, interest in that, especially among Manchester United fans, obviously, given uh, Gig, Skulls, and the Neville brothers, uh, and, and Nicky Butt. I think those are the five uh, f- former United mm-hmm. players who were, who were co-owners of that club. Uh, that would give us some interest, but quite honestly, I think what's ended up happening in the last few seasons among Premier League clubs, now of course Arsenal fans will argue differently because now they've won the FA Cup a couple times, uh, even though they've taken a difficult route. Um, very, very, very fortunate to beat Wigan two seasons ago in the semifinals and then last season Reading, both, both lower division opposition. What has happened is there is now uh, this emphasis on trying to claim a trophy earlier in the season and then pivot to Europe and the league and, and try and do the best you can in Europe, assuming you make the knockout stages of the European Cup or, or, or Europa League and the uh, Premier League. So what has happened is the League Cup, strangely enough, which is which is really kind of always been a third or fourth tier competition in people's minds, a, 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 a competition that was exclusively created because of the uh, invention of floodlights at stadiums just to get more more dates at, at uh, at grounds and, and uh, more revenue has now taken on an added dimension as a cup you can win early to bank uh, a trophy in a season and then play without pressure. We have seen the last two Premier League winners, uh, Manchester City and Chelsea, take this approach, get that cup in, in, in the bank, so to speak, and then focus on the league. And both then went on to win the league. We are seeing this season, I think you're Liverpool under Klopp, uh, Everton, uh, looking for a trophy, emphasizing it. Manchester City, once again, under Pellegrini, taking the cup very seriously, which is part of the reason why maybe Pellegrini doesn't deserve as much uh, of uh, a critique about City's injury problems and depth issues, because he's emphasized trying to win the League Cup, which is why he's continued to play starters through that competition. And a very good Stoke team under Mark Hughes that sees this as an opportunity to win a trophy. Because of that, guys, I think the FA Cup has taken on less... Uh, interest, particularly with those League Cup semifinals being around the same time as the FA Cup third round. Mm. The third round doesn't actually take place until the first full week of January, so it may be hard to measure this, Lawrence. But what's the romance level like for the FA Cup in England? I imagine it's much higher than the rest of the world for obvious reasons. But do you detect that the romance, the interest in this competition is waning, holding steady, maybe even increasing? Uh, I, I think there's also elements of cynicism around the the competition, be- just because uh, you know what what's the end goal of it? Does it uh, add anything to uh, your coefficient in Europe or those kind of things? Mm. Um, and I do think that's becoming more of a focus uh, within England uh, because the worry is that other countries are catching up. Um, I also think yeah, earlier uh, on we we saw less fixture. Uh, pile up those kind of things i also think the fact that it was one which was televised a lot more probably had a lot more of the um 
the romanticism around it and now everything is much more accessible so i think it takes a bit more of a backseat there as well uh, for me I, I would much rather finish fourth in the premier league or you know do better in the premier league than do anything in the fa cup mm. because yeah as much as it's a successful day i i still think there's there's so much more to be gained as a club and so much more longevity for anyone uh, you know, who wants to win league. No one ever comes, you know, and also then you have to face fans every other day and you sort of think, well, you know, no one ever replies, well, we won the FA Cup, so there. Um, <laughs> Arsenal fans do. No, no one cares about that. Um, mm. Genuinely, there's no, everyone. Oh, I, I, I think that's further, that's further undermined the cup because the, the, the feeling is Arsenal doesn't win things that other clubs take seriously. Whether that's fair or not, that's, I think, yeah. the response from a lot of fans. I kind of feel I, bad I, for I Arsenal it, that they haven't had a, uh, a bigger team in these cup finals. But as you pointed out, Kartik, whether it be against Wigan or Hull, they have made it hard enough for themselves against teams that aren't considered major challenges. I'm not sure that there's a real huge argument for saying that Arsenal would look any better if a City or a Chelsea or United had made it to a final, even though Arsenal did defeat United on the way last year. Lawrence, you were saying? I, you know, I, I don't think it lessens it as a competition because I think... There are other positives in there. Um, but I also think that a lot of teams, uh, especially uh, teams who aren't necessarily uh, enjoying hard tackling or sort of other ways of playing and uh, are more focused on ideology, those kind of things, in many ways, you know, that gets in the way of it because it's harder to play a team who don't have the same sort of um, approaches you. And, and the other thing I should mention is that there are, this has become a narrative among championship clubs. And it's, there's a reason why the teams that have gone deep from the championship the last few years have been teams that are not necessarily chasing promotion. Championship teams now have taken the FA Cup less seriously than Premier League clubs, the ones chasing promotion, because it just adds more fixtures, adds more games in a already 46 game schedule yeah. where, where, uh, you are, at the business end, chasing promotion. So yeah. ask Nigel uh, Clough where cup success gets you. Yeah, right. No, he got the sad. World Soccer Talk podcast even, is produced uh, by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley, and is a production uh, of WorldSoccerTalk.com. Uh, For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at World Soccer Talk or follow the show's host, Lawrence McKenna, is at Lawscast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA. Some games we haven't talked about from this weekend, and I'm at Richard Farley. Lawrence, let's start with you. Crystal Palace one none one nil victory over visiting Southampton felt like a very typical Crystal Palace win, but unfortunately for Southampton, it kind of felt like a typical performance from the Saints of late. Yes, yeah, certainly so. Uh, I, I also uh, I think that they they obviously like Peller up front, uh, Shane Long. It just didn't quite lead the line in the way that you would want him to. I don't know if they are particularly playing to his strengths mm-hmm. uh, at this time. Uh, whereas I feel the opposite about the front four you could say or maybe maybe even front five in transition at times of Wilfred Zaha, Balassi, Wickham and I think it was Punchin as well by the end of the yeah. match um, and and those guys were streaming forward and running at what looked like a back four or three uh, maybe even a back five at times depending on the shape of that Southampton side uh, Bertrand obviously offers quite a lot of cover out there and so uh, again though there is just I, I don't want to call it luck but there is a lot that seems to go for Palace. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's a, uh, that, that is a good thing because, you know, it's going to help Pardew. But it's better than I'm, not still, it. I'm still waiting for them to be up against it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, that, that's the problem is it's Pardew that you're waiting to be up against it, not Palace. You want to see Palace do well, but you feel so conflicted because he's there. 
Kartik, let's talk about another match that took place in London this weekend. This one in East London, West Ham nil-nil with Stoke City, a result that flattered the Potters, who you and I have been talking about this subject all year. There seems to be an overexcitement to anoint Stoke the um, as having the stylistic revolution. But this weekend, starting without a true striker up top, starting with three defensive options in midfield between Jeff Cameron, Glenn Whelan, and Marco Van Hinkle, this was Stoke reverting to a kind of pragmatism that we see Mark Hughes do every once in a while. It's not exactly the stylistic revolution that people imply is going on with the Potters. No, this was a confounding team sheet from Sparky. I mean, part, partly dictated by suspensions and injuries, but still... Uh, very, very disappointing. They didn't show much going forward at all. Uh, Boyan didn't see much of the ball because he was playing isolated up top in this very, very bizarre setup. And they they just were uh, everything we saw from them the previous week against Manchester City. They gave back. Uh, as far as West Ham is concerned, this uh, period without Dimitri Payet, where I thought they might uh, completely collapse, uh, they're surviving. They're not getting wins, but they've gotten a couple of draws now. And they're getting enough points to where I, I was concerned when Payet got injured that maybe they get sucked back into a relegation fight. But that doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, Billich has got this team uh, uh, well organized and fighting, and, and, and they're getting the results they need to, to stay in, about mid-table. It's three straight draws for West Ham. It's also three straight draws now for Everton, who looked like the better side against Norwich City, but Norwich City got a well-earned draw at Carroll Road. Lawrence, the lingering question for me in this game is how long do we continue giving Everton credit for playing well, even though in 10th place, they're not getting the results that they need to actually climb the table? Yeah, rightly so. Uh, They have more possession, they have more shots, they have more uh, accurate shots on goal and all the uh, overall stats which would point to the fact that Everton uh, were the better team in this game, although it was you know, away to Norwich. I still think uh, Norwich are going to be happy with that point. Uh, Romelu Lukaku created a lot of chances in this one. There are a lot of fans, I think, questioning. There have just always been questions around Martinez, and I, I, I always feel very sorry for him at Everton at times because the questions that people ask are always questions that they cannot have answered. So it just ends up being, it, it ends up boiling down to frustration. So people sort of go, why isn't he taking Kone off? Kone is... Uh, Kone's clearly tired and he's clearly been tired in the last couple of games as well. And you sort of think, yes, but surely there's a reason that he's still on the pitch as well. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it, uh, when it goes well, then it goes exceptionally well. Uh, but I think at the same time, this still somewhat feels like a club almost in a, a kind of purgatory yeah. uh, for me that, you know, they're looking for a, a bigger sale. And I actually don't understand why Everton haven't been bought by someone massive yet because essentially they are. I mean, they're more marketable than a Leicester, you know? If you were to go into uh, Merseyside, then you could definitely, uh, you know, build up the marketability of that uh, the Merseyside yeah. and even north northwest uh, rivalry. I think Richard and I are always very struck by how many American fans Everton has, how many yeah. just people who are American soccer fans that don't necessarily follow European football closely, identify as Everton supporters because... Tim Howard, London Donovan. Right, well, yeah, Joe Max Moore, Brian McBride also. But yeah, uh, really because of those those first three you mentioned. Hmm. Uh, one match we haven't talk, talked about this weekend, Watford 1-0 victory against Sunderland. Probably played out a lot like we would have anticipated last week, Kartik. Uh, Sunderland looked a lot better after they added another person to that midfield that we thought was a little suspect last weekend. But the story here is Watford, three wins in a row. What do you think the Hornets' ceiling is? Is is it higher than the seventh place they hold right now? Um, hmm, I don't know. It might not be higher than seventh, but it is about where they are. They, In fact, a couple of weeks ago, when I was... Uh, 
off uh, and wasn't able to watch uh, all these games. And I think you guys remember the weekend. The weekend I had a Democratic Party convention and then a Strikers game in Jacksonville. And I called somebody to get the table and they told me Watford was in 13th place. I was stunned. I said, my goodness, it seems like they should be in 6th or 7th the way they're playing. And now they finally, their results have caught up with their level of play. Uh, and by level of play, I mean their defensive organization and then Igalu and Dini going forward, scoring goals. So uh, this is about where I think they should be in the table. This is where I thought they should have been a month and a half ago when that weekend I got the, the stunner to learn that they were in 13th or 14th at that point. Uh, it seems like they have been playing well all season. Mm-hmm. And they're getting the results now to back up that play. They played... Uh, they, they played very well, even in games that they lost to, to Arsenal and Manchester City. They have, uh, I don't remember a game where Watford hasn't played up to their level this season. And that's something you have to give Kiki Sanchez Flores uh, credit for. He's a manager that uh, has, has moved around a lot in his career. And obviously Watford has cycled through managers uh, since the Pozo family takeover. But I think they found the right manager at least to keep them in the league and keep them competitive mid-table with him. And, and keep in mind, a lot of Simeone's principles at Atleti, and right now uh, Atleti are as good a defensive side as any side in Europe in the last couple of years, right? They've been consistently maybe the best defensive side in the top league. Uh, they, ca- they were started by uh, Kiki Sanchez Flores when he was there before he got the sack. And uh, they've just kind of kept going with that at Letty. So I think uh, Watford has the right manager and the right mix of players right now. Watford is now above Liverpool. They're above Everton. And of course, that means they're above Chelsea, who play in the weekend's marquee match on Monday at Leicester City. Uh, we talked about it midweek, me and Nipun. Let's get your guys' uh, thoughts on it. I think it's going to be a relatively comfortable win for Leicester. The energy, the execution that they have, couple goal victory. Nipun's going in the other direction, saying this is the correction game that Kartik was looking for a couple weeks ago, and Chelsea's going to have a multi-goal victory. Lawrence, what are you looking forward to Monday's game uh, at Leicester? What I'm looking forward to seeing is uh, is the fact that uh, Leicester are obviously going to be playing against uh, a Chelsea team which is either going to be really compact or they're going to look to play in the same way they did in the Champions League and you know drag things out more in the game and therefore play a bit more into Jose's hands. Jose has no problem with parking the bus, essentially, but I wonder uh, when the Leicester City midfield comes up against the the midfield that uh, Jose doesn't like to keep the ball in too much, how they're going to cope with that. And I wonder whether they'll put, they'll try and put Mares a little bit more into the game in that area to basically frighten whoever Mourinho uh, puts in there. I, 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 For me, the way it plays out is that we see a very compacted uh, Chelsea side come out against uh, a Leicester team who are uh, basically going to hit them with a whole load of energy and not have Ashley Young on a yellow card like they did against Manchester United. So how do they get through there? Hmm. Yeah, Kartik, I want to talk to you about that. But uh, on the same theme that Lawrence brought up, I was very jealous listening to Football Weekly's podcast on Thursday because I think they saw the game a lot better than Nipun and I did. Nipun and I thought this was going to have multi-goals for the winning team either way. But the panel that uh, James Richardson had on the Guardian show basically pointed out this is the exact type of game that Jose Mourinho is going to be happy getting a nil-nil. And given where his team at is at and how it's performed this year, it can justify going to the league leaders, parking the bus, accepting a nil-nil. And if Lester doesn't crack that, crack through that barrier early, I really do think that a Chelsea team that I would say is likely to start Ramirez in the middle. Um, 
if they don't push Cesc Fabregas up into that that top three, I certainly don't think Oscar is still going to play up there. I think this is a game that Jose Mourinho is going to get one of his famous away-from-home nil-nil results. Oh, gosh, I hope you're wrong, but it sounds like a very likely scenario. Look, I think none of us are neutrals in this game. You're either a Chelsea fan, there's people who support Chelsea or rooting for Chelsea, or the rest of the world is rooting for Leicester. And including me, I'm not a neutral in this game. So uh, we so badly want to see Ranieri beat Mourinho. I, mean, I think I think that's a big part of it, right? Mm. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to be uh, shy about this one. I, I very badly want Leicester to win this game. I very badly want Ranieri to beat Mourinho and beat Abramovich. I mean, I just think that that's uh, been 12 years in the making. But yeah, Richard, now that you mentioned that, I I'm kind of concerned that's what he'll do. And Leicester has countered so well this season. Their movement with Mares, what happens is Conte wins the ball in midfield, right? He's won more tackles. He has more interceptions, if that's the, the term you want to use for that stat, well, than any other player. I thought we're supposed to talk about Drinkwater here. Isn't he the, the guy with the nice British name that we're supposed to say is holding down the middle, not the, oh, the no, French guy I, we I was, barely know? I was going to mention Drinkwater, though, because what's happened is Drinkwater's been able to push forward because Conte has been so good at solidifying the middle, breaking up the other team's possession, other team's attacks. Drinkwater has surged forward, had less defensive responsibility in some of these cases, and has been able to complement the movement of, of, of Ozaki, Vardy, and uh, Mares perfectly to where even if the other team is bunkered, they score. And so that's my hope if, if, if uh, Mourinho comes out very cynically. And now that you've laid it out for me, I think you're right. That's exactly how he'll come out. Cynically, take the nil-nil, talk about this as a turning point like he did the Spurs game a couple weeks ago, and, and move on. I think Leicester have enough where they can break down uh, Chelsea. There is, there is a correction coming from Leicester. Otherwise, we, wouldn't, we would be putting them in our top fours for, for the end of the season now. But I just think this Chelsea team isn't – they're not a good team at this point. I, there's nothing that tells me, other than getting a nil-nil, which they might get, that they could go to Leicester and win a game 2-1 to one or 3-2. to two. And I expect Leicester, in their form, to be able to break down Chelsea at some point, get a goal, and maybe if Mourinho parks the bus, uh, open them up, get that one goal from, from Mares on, on a, a surging run, diagonal run, and win 1-0. Yeah, I'm I'm staying with you, Kartik. I think that Leicester's just pure work ethic and speed is going to get them the result. I'm not going to be surprised with a nil-nil in this one. Well, we're going to be coming to you midweek we'll, where we'll certainly talk about that result, talk about Champions League draw, Euro draw. We'll talk about that midweek. But then seven days from now, we'll be back with you with another Premier League review podcast. Until then, for everybody at World Soccer Talk, my co-host Lawrence McKenna, Kartik. Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737, Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lawscast, and Nipun is Nipun Chopra 7 Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email, richard at worldsoccertalk.com.